on This Week in Sales, we're going to be taking a look at shaming people, not just any people, shaming salespeople on LinkedIn, what high growth companies do different to negative growth companies, and B2B marketplaces, and a whole ton more. My name is Will Barry, and I'm one half of this show. Victor Antonio, sales legend, absolute sales legend, joins me by the power of Skype. Victor, how is it going, sir? It is going good. I'm a little tired, Will. I don't know about you, but man, my sleep patterns are off, and I don't know why. Is it too much partying? Is that what it is? I, I love to think so. I, I I thought it was caffeine, so I kind of pulled back on the caffeine. I thought it might be the imbibing in the evening, a little beer, a little wine, so I pulled back on that. Man, I just can't figure it out. So I'm on a five to six hour. I guess that's good enough, right? Five to six hours sleep. Do you think that's good enough? No, that's terrible. That is literally terrible. Uh, most people need within six to at least six, if not eight hours to, to function appropriately. Oh, I know Elon Musk, God. for example, sleeps uh, eight to nine hours a day. So if he can physically do that and he sees the benefits in it, then we should probably do the same as wife as well, right? Wow. Okay. I got I got. I got to up my sleep game then. Yeah. Thank you. Will Elon Musk appreciate that? Because if Elon Musk is doing it, I guess I have to do it, right? I mean, that's. I mean, why wouldn't I listen to Elon Musk, the biggest brain in the universe? Yeah, for sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe just to juxtapose that slightly. Maybe he's doing more than what we are, so maybe he needs more sleep as well. I'm sure. Uh, as much as as hard as we work, Victor, I'm sure we're not running like five multi-billion-dollar companies and trying to put, trying to replicate the human race and get them on Mars. Yeah, and, and drilling tunnels. Is it? He's doing the project now. I think is it in California? Not California. Recently, it was like Florida. Florida. He wants to put a tunnel in Florida for mm-hmm. electric cars. Latest yep. project. By the way, but here's the thing. He said he could do it. I remember the number. He said he could do it for like $30 million. And everybody's like, what? $30 million? How, how is that possible? Well, apparently Elon thinks it's possible. For sure. Well, the boring company, which is doing that project, and they want to do a, a tunnel in LA as well to cut some of the traffic off there, was a joke. It started off as a joke. And he just had so much engineering knowledge and expertise within all these companies that they were like, okay, we'll spin this off and we'll give it a go. So that that's the kind of level he's playing at. <laughs> well, uh, the man's building tunnels, man. So yeah, he's sending people to Mars and building tunnels, man. From the ground, space, the guy's got it covered, man. So that's cool. He's killing it. Cool. All right, let's jump into some sales news. That's what everyone listening and watching is here for. So first article here from globalnewswire.com. 87% of high growth sales organizations take a value-based approach to sales, according to new research. Now, just to give you some numbers here, Victor, this is data done, research done by Value Selling Associates. 87% of high growth companies take a value-based approach. 45% of negative growth companies take a value-based approach. Is it as simple? Is sales success as simple as just taking a value-based approach to selling? Could we just wrap up the whole show, all our content, and just just go down the the value-adding route? When when I first read this, uh, you know, that you posted here, I go, what? Like, duh, why not sell value, right? Like, uh, who doesn't sell value? But then when I looked at the details of the report, I said, okay, I see what the, where these guys are going. So I'll, I'll let you finish up the second part. But yeah, I, it, value base is obvious. Sure. And, and there's loads of data points in this article, which you can find over at This Week in Sales in the full show notes. Uh, another point I pulled out from here, again, one point from about 15, was that almost half, 47% of high growth companies, focus on upskilling their salespeople in presenting in virtual settings, whilst only 13% of negative growth companies too. And my conclusion from a lot of this data that they've pulled out here is that high growth companies uh, 
care about the train uh, the employees they're training them they're giving them the tools to succeed and that's what's making them a high growth company <laughs> is that a reasonable conclusion yeah yeah, I, when, when I read the data, I go, okay, so essentially, you know, positive-minded companies basically see the value in training. Negative-minded negative companies don't. That's really the whole article. But some of the data points were, you know, rather interesting. But a lot of it, I was like, yeah, duh, duh. You know what I mean? Okay, that's obvious. That's obvious. So uh, it, it, I guess it's that whole thing. If you invest and you believe in training, as you say, upscaling, whether it's virtual or not virtual, you're going to have, have a positive mindset towards training. If not, your sales are going to suffer. So... I get it. I'm with these guys. I'm with BSA on this one. Yeah. And let me ask you this, Victor, because I've just interviewed Aaron Ross of uh, Predictable Revenue fame. And the conversation came down to this, this point of using the scientific method. So having a hypothesis and then A-B testing, testing whether it's right and keep going mm -hmm. down that pathway until you find the truth, what's real. And then the other part of the conversation was, we just need to simplify we need to suss out what works, what doesn't, get rid of everything that doesn't, and focuses on focus on the most important things. Keep the main thing the main thing is why I was is the rhetoric that I always say to myself. Do we overcomplicate a lot that. of this, Victor? <laughs> Should we just be keeping the main thing the main thing and then testing our assumptions? The main thing, I love that phrase. Should I, the main thing is the main thing. Keep yeah. the main thing the main thing. It just sounds like one of those Dr. Seuss riddles. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's what you do. Uh, uh, first of all, the A-B testing, it is, I mean, that's an obvious one there that you're going to have to try to figure it out. But I, I do think when you're talking about, and I love when you always say suss out, that we have to suss out what we do not do and do not need. Because I think, and we should find some numbers on this, well, maybe for the next podcast, that, you know, when we look at technology stacks, are we just relying too much on technology and overcomplicating the process? Mm -hmm. In other words, sales at its very essence is still two people essentially talking See if there is a value exchange, and if there is, let's do this. But sometimes I think we get layered with technology that we're moving farther away from people than closer. Sure, and, and Aaron's spin on this, I, I don't want to give away the whole episode. You can find it over at sales.org and, and, and all the content. But a lot of what Aaron uh, Ross of Predictable Revenue preaches is that when you sub-segment out the sales roles, then you've got more opportunity. You're not overwhelmed by the burden of technology and automation because you're only using one element of the sales stack. So things become more seamless and more humanized when you do split out the roles like that, as opposed to uh, me and my background in medical device selling, where I had to prospect, close deals, account manage, customer success, uh, expand accounts, all this stuff. If I was doing this now, I'd probably have about 15 different tools I'd have to use just to stay on top of, of all the data information coming in and, and to analyze some of it. And so that might be overwhelming. So perhaps is it fair to say maybe some of the solution, if we are overwhelmed by tech stack and we, we want to simplify things, is just to, to sub-segment out some of the sales process. You bring up a very good point, is that if you were to do a before and after comparison of you know, I don't want to say pre-technology because we've always had technology in the last 10 to 20 years, but let's say the last 10 to 20 years, 10 years. If you look at the technology stack 10 years ago versus the technology stack today, and then lay out the sales process and see where you would need all these uh, different uh, products, mm -hmm. it would be interesting to compare the difference and the effectivity of both before and after. Do you know what? Do our more tools really make us more efficient? I like what Aaron's doing. He's talking about, let's just partition out what's in that sales process and then whatever tools are needed for that particular role, that's the only technology you'll use. But then the other extreme of that is, is that maybe you're too focused. See, there's always that balance, right? Either you're too narrow or you're too wide. So the debate continues. Yeah, and we'll come back to this towards the end of the show when we go into the audience questions, when we're going to touch on what we touched on last week, which is pre-sales and, and pre-sales engineering. What have we got up next, Victor? Mm. 
SurveyMonkey announces availability of GetFeedback's integration with Salesforce Commerce Cloud. I thought this was interesting because I'm always about how are we yanking in data into the machine, the machine being the CRM, right? That whole, you know, the Death Star. Uh, so SurveyMonkey, a leader in agile software solutions for customer experience, market research, and survey feedback today announced the general availability of a new integration connecting uh, integration connecting get feedback survey monkeys multi-channel agile cx customer experience uh, with salesforce commerce cloud so that's the name of their product get feedback get feedback is a powerful again agile why do why do they overuse the word agile you ever read some of these press releases like mm -hmm. what does it mean can you just talk speak english please uh, an easy to use cx solution that, uh, that companies like crocs decker and all these wonderful companies use to capture feedback across all channels analyze its trends, and act on it quickly. Again, I wanted to highlight this well because, as I already mentioned, I love the fact that we're that these companies are trying to figure out all these different, I'll say, data sources that they can pull information in, let the machine learning do its thing to find the insights they need. So I think this is another interesting integration piece into the CM integration story. Well, I'm going to do, Victor, what I both intentionally and unintentionally do every single week and uh, just try to undermine every post that you make and everything, everything you have to say on this show. Let me ask you this question. Maybe you're going to undermine yourself here. How often do you reply to emails that ask for feedback from brands that are automated? Almost never will. <laughs> <laughs> Almost never. The thing is, you know, and it's funny because they try to frame it in so many different ways, but in my mind, I'm going, you want me to take my time to do this survey. And I think, you know, I think because we've been fooled in the past, I think we've been conditioned to hate surveys because, back, I mean, rewind it, let's go back. Once upon a time when these surveys came out, you'd like, you know what, let me give them some feedback so they can improve their process. But then you, you get into their survey, you get into their survey and all of a sudden, one question turns into like a string of 20 questions. And now you've gone down that rabbit hole. I think they should do what they do with the bathrooms at the airport here in the U.S. You know, when you come out of the bathroom, you got a happy face, you mm -hmm. got a sad face. Are you happy with the cleanliness? Are you unhappy? Bam, bam. I think it should be that simple. That makes sense for it to be at least the first step. And then you send someone the survey after the fact. We get down the, the psychology of the, the yes ladder then of once someone's made one move, perhaps they're more likely to make another one. But that's, that's very smart. I don't know what we'd call this new business, the, the 87th This Week in Sales spin-off business that we're going to create on the back of that, Victor. Um, but yes, yesno.com would be a, a great domain for a surveys tool that yes, starts no, uh, kind of the funnel like that. Because, you know, it, the thing is, because then you would have a, if it's yes, then maybe you'll send a string of emails that would probably appeal to that yes person. If it's no, well, some people like to gripe. Please tell us your gripe and I'll give you yeah. a gift card. I don't know. But you're right. But by the way, SurveyMonkey is growing. And you don't build out an integration platform like this unless it's growing. I think what they're using it for is maybe when they get uh, feedback from their customers, their existing customer base. So if if I am a subscriber to the salesman.podcast, right, and I, I really love the show, and then you send me a survey, I think I would give you feedback as a client. I think I would. Sure. Okay. Have you ever, it's going to seem off topic, but I'll drag it back in a second. Have you ever read Amazon's uh, letters to shareholders, what Jeff Bezos writes every year, or used to write, I guess? I have not. Okay, so for anyone who's listening who, whether you're in sales, leadership management, especially if you are in the executive, the C-suite, they are must-reads. They're, they're incredible. I, like written for 
individuals and humans as opposed to uh, written for the written for shareholders, but they're written in a way that even I can understand and comprehend. Right? They're not written in a complicated format for finance teams to decipher mm-hmm. and debate over kind of stock prices. They're really good, and you can look. They're all public online, and you can look back to twenty years ago when Jeff's like, hmm. Maybe maybe we should sell stuff other than books. I think there's a marketplace for that. You can you can see the the company growing. Well, a recurring theme within the letters to shareholders is metrics that Amazon is based upon, and one of the things that they are super hot on, which is the the almost opposite of what we're describing here with feedback, is one of the metrics that they measure every single day, month on month, year on year, is per order. How many tickets do we get? How much feedback do we get per order? And they see that every time there's a ticket raised, a question asked, uh, you know, a comment given, an FAQ opened, they've not done a good job. They want people to log mm-hmm. in, buy and check out without any engagement, any interaction whatsoever. And they see that as success. So when we're asking for feedback, we're perhaps even going about all of this the wrong way and we shouldn't have to. I know we need to gather feedback somehow. But a lot of the time, I feel like if you're having to ask for feedback, there's probably an issue and you need to resolve the issue as opposed to uh, kind of suss out the wider picture. I think I think that's a good point. You know, you, you're as I'm listening to you, you reminded me of that book, uh, which I, I think it's it's one of those undervalued books. It's called The um, the Effortless Experience. It was written by the guys who wrote like uh, The Challenger Sale. I think it was Matt Dixon and, oh, I forgot the other guy's name. He's going to yell at me. Brent Adamson, maybe, mm-hmm. and a guy named Tolman. But in there, they came up with their own metric. Uh, instead of using the NPS or the CSAT, Customer Satisfaction Score, they basically highlighted something called the Customer effort score. And the lower the customer effort score is, the better, which is to your point, that if somebody has to ask a question or, in your case, generate a ticket, then you failed or you're failing the process. So great point. Yeah. And and I think we'll see this. I don't know if you've seen this because you, you've got more experience uh, over a longer period of time than me in the this sales training industry and yeah, everything I, goes I, on. I like, I, like, I, like the, I like the way you always slide in my yeah. age and how old but I am. But I did am. it positively I, I then. the way you do that. <laughs> that. But this is, a, usually I'm taking the piss out of you, but this was a, a positive <laughs> reference to it, Victor, of, because I've seen this over the past few years. So I'm intrigued to, to how, whether you've seen this develop as well. There seems to be a lot more of a focus on customer success well, it didn't exist. It used to be customer service a few years ago, right? It seems to be a lot more of a focus on customer success. And I'm assuming this is because everyone is on a SaaS model or a pay monthly model as opposed to one-off capital payment. So we need to, as as organizations, we need to keep these buyers on board for longer periods of time to recoup perhaps the costs of acquisition upfront. So do you see customer success becoming more and more important? And do you, have you seen that in your own career uh, develop from nothing into something, into perhaps something even more important than sales over the longer term? I think, you know, when you compare, you know, because I'm, I'm as old as the dinosaurs, according to you. So back then, you did have the tools, right? You did have the tools. I think we have more tools to actually engage customers automatically. You know, the bots, the chat bots, the virtual assistants and all that. But I really think that this move towards the the customer journey and the buyer experience, the real focus mm-hmm. on that, everything from, you know, the font on the screen to the color and where you position the image, all that is has become more of a science where before it was more of an art and we were just guessing. So I think that's one of the biggest transitions. For sure. I know of our own product over at salesman.org, I've just, it's been, it seems like a dead easy change this, right? This has taken weeks of messing around. But now when you log in, it doesn't just tell you, um, hi, Will, congratulations, you've done this amount of work and training this week. It now will say it's been seven days and you've not logged in. Perhaps you could check out some of these articles, jump in the community and do X, Y, Z. 
Then after 30 days, it does something else. And after 60 days, basically, we try and re reignite your passion for the training and bring you back into the, the training product. Now, that is 100% customer journey. We don't do any uh, over at Salesman Dog. We don't do any kind of monthly subscriptions or anything like that. Everyone pays up front uh, for the product itself. So there's no real value other than customer experience. But what I believe is, and I think you would agree with this, customer experience now will lead to more referrals and better business further down the line. So that's why we're, I'm, I'm personally doubling down on all of this. It's one thing to sell someone. It's one thing to uh, have someone half bought in and there's a little bit of buyer's remorse and they're like, well, I've, I've committed me cash now. I'll, I'll do the training. It's another thing entirely mm. to have someone go, okay, I spent my money. Let's jump into it and then be come out the other end of it even more excited and, and wanting to refer their friends and, and what we're aiming for, to be very blunt, is individuals come in and then they upsell it internally to their own organization and get the sales managers involved. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bought into all this and I'm, I'm sure you are as well. I'm on the right tracks with some of this, aren't I, Victor? I, yeah, and I love the fact that you mentioned, you mentioned it quickly, but it's really important that when we compare back then to today, today people feel more opinionated and they have the tools to be opinionated so they can leave you that negative review. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also generated this interest on the corporate side, on the com- on the company side to make sure that we don't get any negative reviews. So, you know, this this whole cancel culture, you know, has really taken hold this, you know, whether it's sus- social justice warriors, let's call it the social justice online, right? Like, oh my god, you know, you made me click 3 times I'm canceling you. So I think there's this fear of that. So I think companies are doing a lot, all they can to really make sure that the customer experience slash journey is as smooth as it can be. And I think that's smart though. I think it's a win-win in the end. Yeah, it it is win-win. Maybe it's more development costs up front and more work, but a better customer experience has got to be better over the long run. And talking about tools, we're on to the next one here. This title of the article from Payments.com, spelled incorrectly, P-Y-M-N-T-S.com. Uh, the title of the article, I'm going to say it, but it's got nothing to do with the point I want to make. B2B fashion marketplace taps new sales with virtual trade shows. Well, this article is diving into uh, B2B marketplaces. Now, it says they're nothing new. In fact, it's an idea that has its roots in the late 1990s and early 2000s when Ariba and Commerce One and many others took a shot at organizing buyers and suppliers online for the purpose of discovering each other and doing business. One study found that 75% of B2B buyers and sellers now want to make purchases or interact with business partners online. We've covered that study in the past. What I want to dive into that's half included in this this, uh, article here, Victor, is, is there an opportunity for an Amazon of B2B products and services? It's becoming so noisy to find services, sales outbound. Uh, It's getting so much harder. We're going to dive into some kind of uh, comments and cancel culture on some outbound on, on LinkedIn later on in the show. But with it becoming such a noisy environment, is the value or is the increasingly the potential of va- value of having one site where you go, everything's fairly compared and you can buy through that website, whether it's sales tools, marketing tools, SaaS products, whatever it is, is the value in a kind of someone building the Amazon of, of B2B products and services? But that's almost like, you know, one could argue that's almost like Alibaba. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even though Alibaba has everything, but I mean, you can go buy a, a earth mover for $1 million on <laughs> Alibaba. So maybe that's kind of what they're aiming for. So, I mean, there's always that opportunity. I, I, what I like about this uh, this article you found here is that, you know, the concept really had its roots in the 1990s and 2000s, if you, as you said. Kind of leads to the point we were talking about earlier, that back then, maybe didn't we didn't have the tools Plus, maybe the mindset wasn't there. 
fast forward, this pandemic has accelerated digital transformation. So now virtual seems acceptable. The tools are there. The bandwidth is there sometimes uh, as far as connections. But, I mean, we're more open to it now. So in the study, that's, what is it, 75% yep. uh, now want to make a purchase? I mean, I mean, I think that's a that's big number. Well, that's a big number. I'm just on the Alibaba.com website. And one mm-hmm. of the top links at the top of the page, clearly they're pushing traffic to this because Alibaba gets mm-hmm. millions of page views every day, right, is online mm-hmm. trade shows. Now, I'm on the online trade shows page. It says there's 32 product categories. There's 37,000 participating suppliers. There is one, basically 1.4 million products been launched on the Alibaba, um, I guess, online trade show. And I assume it's it's almost like a Kickstarter campaign, apart from the the products are not in development, so they actually exist. And you can launch them on there. You can go and interact with the suppliers. Perhaps you're shopping for, I don't know, office furniture, whatever it is. That, that's, that's a B2B sale, right? You're searching for office furniture. So I assume if I type in, I'll do it in real time now, office furniture, it'll come up with, yeah, comes up with a whole list of suppliers. This is kind of what I was alluded to Um but maybe my spin was on more software and tools as opposed to physical products. Alibaba's just physical products. And there's countless suppliers that can give us office furniture at different price points, there are the, which is interesting here as well. Alibaba has a verified element to it as well, much like eBay does. And there's even a button to chat now. I'm going to click chat now and see what happens. Or it's telling me to sign in. So I assume that even the sales conversation then as an inbound lead has been facilitated on Alibaba as well. So I'll just I'll I'll re re ask the question I guess can we do <laughs> Alibaba for other B two B products is that the smart oh, way absolutely. to go about this Oh yeah uh, we got to find some big suppliers like uh, let me see uh, Dear HubSpot Dear Salesforce uh, Dear Course AI some big companies to build out some massive system like that I think Salesforce would be in a, in a position to build out something like that I think what do you think I, Should we push that on Salesforce to do it well, Salesforce has an app marketplace, right? Um, mm-hmm. Other companies that have these APIs and integrations have app marketplace as well. Obviously, Salesforce should be in the giant. It is as the, mm-hmm. the biggest and leading one. But maybe we don't want Salesforce or a specific supplier to be uh, creating this. And what I'm thinking here is, if we wanted to do a marketplace for CRM organizations, why, why can't it just be a, a website that has so much content on CRM, has... CRM specific experts creating podcast content, video content, so that if you want to do anything to do with CRM, you go to this one specific place and they'll give you unbiased uh, vendor information and they will they'll put you in front of the right people, the right organizations. They can even perhaps facilitate a, a bidding or, or tender process and they take a cut of the, the end sale from the supplier side as opposed to uh, taking a buyer fee up front. I feel like something like that could be incredibly valuable, especially for small, medium organizations, obviously large enterprises have their own procurement teams that can do a lot of this for them. But for small, medium organizations, again, un- as, as, obviously it's not going to be completely unbiased, but as, as unbiased as we can possibly be, a, a site like that, a facility, a, a, a program like that could be incredibly valuable to them. And of course, if you're d- delivering leads and, and super hot inbound uh, prospects to all these companies, they're going to be on board as well. Well, I like the idea. I mean, it's a lot of content curation and a lot of, you know, uh, revising of information because of all the new developments every week, so forth and so on. So I know there's a, I know there's a website out there. I don't remember the name, but it's a, it's a website dedicated to reviewing CRMs and doing these comparative analysis. Uh, but I forgot the name of it, but it's out there and the opportunity is there. Well, I, so I Googled CRM reviews. 
top search results in uh, Google is PCMag.com, so clearly not relevant whatsoever. G2.com, somewhat relevant, although I'm skeptical of how biased some of these review sites mm -hmm. are. Softwareadvice.com, again, not very specific. TechRadar.com, not specific at all. There doesn't seem to be. TrustRadius.com, again, somewhat skeptical. Fool.com, which is a finance website. Business.com. These are all... I'd have to go for each one. It would be unfair to say. What I was about to say is these are clickbaity right. articles to just drive clicks as opposed to full-on uh, reviews of uh, in-depth reviews and recommendations on products and services. Um, but it seems like there's a market out there. It's another spin-off business for us, Victor. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, and I remember seeing it. I know it has CRM in the domain name, but I can't remember what it does. I can't see it either. But anyway... A lot of opportunities. You know what? That's why people should listen to this show more often. They're going to get great ideas and launch mega companies. They should give us a slice of the pie after they get big. That says, I just keep reminding them of that, Will, <laughs> to make sure that if, 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 if our conversation generated was a catalyst for any idea, we should be allowed at least, I'm going to be generous here and say, we should be allowed each 1% of that company's value. Uh, you take 1%, I'll take 15%, and everyone is happy. And with that, Victor, tell us we've got another story here on CRM. Let me see. Wait up! I got to blow up. You got me. You got me distracted here. <laughs> so anyway, I, I thought this was interesting because we we last we we talked about boutique CRMs, and so this time I found we we were talking about real estate CRMs last week. This week I found another one. It says hotel CRM software market summary trends, sizing analysis, and forecast to 2025. The study on hotel CRM software market presents a comprehensive analysis of key growth in the market verticals and so forth. <clears throat> What do you think, Will? I mean, is I think this is really interesting that there are all these little boutique markets. And that's all I wanted to, the point I wanted to make with this little article was that there's all these little markets. Like there might be one on contractors. I mean, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting topic. I like all it. These little I like it, Victor. Yeah, I, I feel on. like this feeds back into what we were just talking about of where the heck do you find all these boutique marketplace uh, markets? It seems like the eBay, the Amazon, the Alibaba of CRM. I know, I know we keep plowing onto CRM. Clearly, mm -hmm. most of us are using right. one. That's why I like to use that example with these mm -hmm. with, with, for context for our, our audience. But there could be many other different uh, marketplaces as well. I honestly feel like this feeds back into the, the point that I was making previous of there's, there's a real opportunity here because I would never... That's a really good point. I, would I search for hotel CRM? Would I, I don't know what the search term would be. It'd be... Best, all right, I'm going to search it right now. Best CRM for hotels. Uh, CRM.org came up there. So maybe that's the website that we, we're, we're, we're kind of... Like. Yeah. CRM.org is an online resource for business growth. So kind of, maybe. And I'm just Googling here. Uh, CRMs for contractors, because I've never done that. And sure enough, they even have construction CRM software packages. So, we, I mean, again, a lot of niche markets. Pipedrive is trying to get some of that CRM market for construction by tailoring it. So, okay, Pipedrive is going in there. Pipedrive is going in. They're trying to find these little boutique niches to go after. I think it's fascinating. But I, but I still say that the best way of doing it is to, like, if you look at and we'll just use Salesforce as because it's the largest, a good placeholder. Why aren't they? And they could be. Maybe we just we're just ignorant of the fact that why aren't they building apps specifically for all these boutique markets that just bolt into to Salesforce? I just don't think it's. I think going back to what I said before, keep the main thing the main thing. That's that's my keep motto of all this. The main thing for the main thing for Salesforce is large enterprise organizations. 
And they've got the app store. Maybe there is bolt-ons for other CR, for uh, functionality that we're uh, we're talking about here within the Salesforce. Uh, app you know, well, well, I I think the marketing team over at Salesforce is just just lacking, man. They're just like not looking at the big picture. They they really don't see that all these little small boutiques are going to be bigger boutiques, and it's a large revenue stream. We're trying to help them here, Will. Salesforce, dear Mark, I, dear I, Mark Benioff. I think Salesforce are going to be just fine, and they're, they're more likely to go after Ford than I suppose hotels are a large organizations, right? But I still would rather have Ford and Mercedes as a customer. We're in a large enterprise CRM as opposed to go after. I suppose Marriott. Marriott's they've got, they've got lots of uh, individuals yeah. working there, right? That would be logging in and out. I the thing is, look, I'm trying to democratize. Like I like the way we use that word. I like to democratize the power of the CRM mm-hmm. for all the small market niches. Because I'm always looking out for the little guy. Have well, you ever come across this? Then it, I'm going to Google it now. Again, there's a lot of Googling on this show. We'll, we'll wrap up the Googling in a second. <laughs> but are there no open source CRMs? that are applicable for, I guess, small, medium organizations? Because that seems like the, the solution that you're talking about to democratize this, it, open source technology is the answer. And over the next 20 years, there'll be so much open source of everything that we won't have to necessarily rely on uh, large organizations. And large organizations will be producing open source software themselves, and, and their value that they'll be adding to it will be, uh, it's hosted on our servers, it's reliable, you're using our safe and secure login as opposed to hosting it yourself and trying to faff around with all of that. But I, I feel like the software side of things will become open source. So I'll just Google open source CRM because that's probably the answer that um, I know as you described it, that's what I'd be looking for. I'm just thinking they're, they're missing out. There's got to be, I, I got to believe, we're going to have to dig into this. Before the next show, I'm going to dig into the, uh, you know, are, does somebody like Salesforce, Pipedrive, or some of these other CRM companies, Microsoft Dynamics, do they have you know, APIs that are specific to an industry. I'm going to make a note here. I'm just going to ask I, I got to believe they do. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask I Salesforce gotta... and HubSpot. That's, that's the easiest answer. Salesforce, yeah, HubSpot. Ask them. Care Dear... about boutique. Yeah. There we go. In yeah. real time, yeah. scribbling stuff down in the show notes. So let's move on there now, you go. Victor, to Your turn. Showpad partners with 3Kit to improve buyer experience through enhanced 3D visualization and augmented reality this is over at by the Mar- way I can, I can tell you get excited about this subject because <laughs> your voice goes up a couple of notches <laughs> this is over at martechseries.com and i do get excited because I, this has got to be the future of b2b sales and, and my background is physical products and it, it's difficult for me to picture how physical products so in a surgeon's got to feel in their hands that they've got to use it on a patient translates into this clearly especially when you're dealing with surgeons in hospitals you can't have salespeople going back and forth and just traipsing COVID everywhere or potentially traipsing COVID everywhere. So this is like close to my heart uh, because this is the world that I would, if I was still working in a B2B sales job as an individual contributor, this is what I'd be physically doing. So Showpad and 3Kit have partnered to bring enhanced 3D visualization and augmented reality to Showpad's platform. So I've been through the 3Kit website and it is basically... I assume it's like really photorealistic 3D renders of different products. On the homepage, it's more like couches or wedding rings or whatever it is. And you can one click change colors, change size, change um, whatever the variables are. And then you can, can picture it in your own house, business, office, whatever it is. And clearly this is this is going to become more and more important. Is there anything, am I overemphasizing this? I guess that's the better question. Or am I, no, do you feel like I, I'm on the right track? No, I think, 
You're, you're on the right track. I mean, we're still some time away from it. Look, ever since I saw, uh, have you ever seen the Tupac Shakur uh, hologram with Snoop Dogg at Coachella? Ever since I saw that, I'm going, okay, there's the future. Star Wars people had it right. The little holograms that pop up. Mm-hmm. And ever since I saw that, I said, this is just a matter of time. And, and so think about this for a second. Well, think about this for a second, that people will no longer die. So to speak, even if even if they leave this physical world, the fact that we'll be able to uh, I was talking to uh, Michael Solomon, who we'll get to later about, you know, the, the movie Polar Express with Tom Hanks. Yep. That people people were repulsed because how realistic it looked to Tom Hanks. There was like this repulsion, like, oh, that's kind of scary because it was too much like Tom Hanks. And so I think we're going we're gonna to get used to this. But imagine a world. Imagine a world. It's like the guy with the start to movie. Imagine a world, right? Where, you know, they're so realistic that tomorrow you could take your favorite. Who's your favorite? Like, uh, I don't know, your musician, guitar player, drummer. Who's your favorite? Um, I, oh, it's one of those questions, Victor. I really like the Arctic Monkeys. They're one of my favorite bands. I've got, uh, I've got a, okay. an affiliation with them. All right. Imagine them passing away, unfortunately, right? But still being able to bring them back in such 3D live scenarios and be able to script, you know, you want them to play a specific song, they'll be able to play a specific song. I mean, this is where it's going to go to eventually. Uh, Will we see it? Well, I don't know. But I think before we leave this planet, we might see something close to it. We're going to see it in the next next five years. There will be either a product that you have on your desk that creates some kind of 3D hologram, or I don't know if you've seen it, we've not got it in the the notes this week, but um, there's increasing rumors and supply chain rumors with Apple and their um, augmented reality glasses. So as soon as Apple release a product like this, everyone's it's going to become ubiquitous. Mm. Everyone's going to have it. Um, mm. And it, eventually it'll trickle down. Brands will copy it. Uh, platforms will, maybe Apple's kind of closed with the the source and, and how they put things in. It'll have its own app store, I'm sure. But other brands will... Come together and create a more open way of doing this. And as soon as you can, clearly, it's going to be easier to project an image on your glasses. Use head tracking to make make it look like they're actually in the room, as opposed to have a physical light source hologram, which is what the two pack one was, right? Mm. Uh, that you're all looking at. As soon as you can do that, this becomes real. Now, the only thing is, you've not got the haptic elements of this, so you can't really touch things, you can't pick things up. But there's plenty of developments going on there as well with gloves that will, uh, a lot of this is going on in the video game industry, computer game industry, where you'll wear either gloves or, or a, a pack, a, a vest that when you get shot, it'll essentially poke you and, and ping you to make things more real. So all of this is coming in the next 10 years. Just even playing computer games is going to be insane. It's going to be a completely different experience to what it has in the past. And games just drive so many billions and billions of dollars of revenue that eventually that'll trickle down into our our little bubble of B2B sales as well. By the way, imagine taking that, because I think that's really the future, is that taking that type of technology and putting it into a sales training platform, a virtual training platform, where you can do role play with actual people virtually and have real responses driven by AI. That's going to be fantastic. Well, eventually, we're just going to be at the, the, the matrix, aren't we? You're just going to, you're just going yeah. to log in, and there's going to be a Keanu Reeves of, oh, I know Kung Fu kind of moment. That's what's that's, coming, Victor. That's right. That's right. They're going to plug something <laughs> in your head. All right. Uh, anything else on that one? No, um, just one kind of, I'll, I'll just quote from the end of the article here. Companies with highly complex, highly customizable or simply ex- 
extensive product portfolios to sell, such as those offering in life sciences and medical devices, customer products, home furnishings, and, and all this kind of stuff. They find it difficult to share, educate, and engage buyers on all possible product options and permutations. That's what we've covered here. Being able to, rather than if you're buying, again, office furniture, maybe you want to see what it looks like in your office using augmented reality glasses. Or my, I've got the new iPad. You can hold the iPad up and it uses, um, I, can't, uh, I can't remember the sensor, now, a LiDAR sensor to uh, kind of map the room and you can put Ikea furniture and you can see it to scale, to size, without any programming. It just dumps the furniture in your room. You can move it around and you can walk around it and you can see how it looks. Clearly, that's the future as opposed to ordering demos, samples and getting things delivered that's a pain in the ass. We don't want to be doing that. I love it. I love it. And that's, this gets back to the do it yourself, right? That's what people want to do. I just want to do this myself before I involve any salesperson. So this, by the way, pushes the salesperson engagement even further down the sales cycle, yeah. if you think about it, right? Because you won't need the salesperson maybe till you get to the final point where you got just one or two questions and then boom, you're ready to pull the trigger. So more technology to kick the salesperson <laughs> out of the process. Way to go, Will, on that up note. Anyway, let me talk to you about Performio. I love that name. Performio announces a ma major growth in North America. Performio, the leading enterprise-grade incentive compensation management software solution, has announced 110% growth in North America for FY 2020, the first full year of operations since being acquired in 2019. Performio debuted on the Gartner Magic Quadrant, because everybody wants to be on the Magic mm -hmm. Quadrant. Did you know that, Will? In January 2019, Performio now offers multi-object Salesforce Connected that allows Salesforce customers to directly integrate with any object standard custom in Salesforce. Now, I wanted to highlight this, obviously because they're growing, it's a great company, but incentive compensation management. I am, I don't know, I feel like I am alone in the woods, maybe the desert would be more appropriate, <laughs> yelling, yelling to managers, look at your compensation package. Does it make sense? Will it motivate salespeople to do that much better? That's, that's, my, that's my battle cry. Incentive package, incentive package. Really think about putting one together that makes sense. And by the way, I'm not just talking about base plus commission package. I'm talking about different incentives to move people in a certain direction to sell new products, open new territories, so forth and so on. How much of this, I don't know about this uh, service in particular, but how much of this is automated in that it looks that you as an individual, that you perform better when there's less base salary, but more commission over time. And perhaps it changes some variables, obviously I would hope a real person would have to sign off on this. I'm sure HR wouldn't allow this to just go on in the background and, and be kind of constantly tinkering with things. And that might annoy salespeople as well. But how much of this is automated? How much analytical data can be pulled from this? And can, especially if you've got a large sales team, say 100, 200 people, can we pull significant information from this that allows us to make the whole team better as opposed to just guesstimating or using whatever the sales manager five years ago, 10 years ago implemented? How much How much of this is, is number and data kind of a lead, Victor? I still think it's, it is a narrow application as opposed to a broad application. By that, I mean, it's like when we talk about AI, right? There's narrow, then there's broad. Narrow, specific. They're moving off spreadsheets and they're saying, look, yeah. get off your spreadsheet. Let's put this actually on a platform. And as you pointed out, as you get salespeople, let's say you got 1,000 people, now you need some type of platform system to actually view the data. I think they're at that stage from what I understood once I went to their website. Do they have like the AI behind it to kind of make suggestions? I didn't see that on the website. This is just a first step in moving off Excel and being able to scale a compensation plan.
Yeah, that makes total sense. And a lot of this, uh, what I just kind of outlined then, could be done from data that's on a dashboard. Because right. it's, it's something that developers bang on about all the time. It's almost a meme for developers, right? That Excel is not a database. It's, it's not a database. It's not the same things, right? <laughs> so when we try and manage things that are essentially a database within an Excel document, it just goes astray. And obviously, things get lost. People get this. Some people don't get that. So it's a mess. So it makes total sense because clearly, <laughs> of all the sales stack and all the HR stack, financial incentive is pretty important, right? It's got to be on the, the top so. of the list for because everyone's a stakeholder in that, whether you are in sales, HR, whatever it is, whoever's implementing it, everyone's a stakeholder in, in getting paid. Years ago, I read a book called, it's called GMP, The Greatest Management Principle. I forgot who the, uh, the author was, but he basically, the, the greatest management principle is this, reward the behaviors that you want repeated. Simple which is what an incentive package is, right? That's it. I mean, he could have just wrote one page and the book was done. Yeah. And, but, I, but I still remember that book. I still have, the, I think, the first edition of the book. And I always thought it was just brilliant because it was so obvious. Reward the behaviors you want repeated and don't reward the ones you don't. And I think putting together an incentive plan. I mean, let's zoom back. You've had, you sold for the medical device industry. So let's go through what they go through. Somebody, a product manager comes out with a new product and they go to Will. Hey, Will. I need you to sell this new product I just came up with because I got to make my P&L work, yeah. right, for my little my little group. And Will's like, I don't know. I mean, I got all these other products to sell, plus I'm killing it with A, B, C. I don't need to sell your E product. And I think that's where incentive plans kick in to motivate people to kind of sell additional products, and that's how you scale business. So I, I, think, it's, I think an incentive plan is really a sales plan disguised as marketing, yeah. if it's looked at correctly. That makes sense. I, it's funny. I'm, I'm smiling as you say that because there'd be, uh, say, four or five product managers across uh, for me <laughs> and in us company sales, right? Uh, camera systems, which is where I made all my money and all commissions. Then there'd be, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever it is, endoscopes, which are useful and valuable to us as well. And then there would be the, the bottom kind of crappy products that no one ever cared about. And we spend loads of time with these product managers. These product managers will be trying to get these product managers jobs. And it's just this again, like shuffling about of we've got all these products. Someone's in the organization's paying for the R&D of them somewhere. We don't want to drop them just yet. They should probably just drop yeah. them. And um, it reminds me of that. The I don't know how true this is, but when the, the anecdote of when Steve Jobs went back to Apple and they had like 300 products and he narrowed it down to like four and that's how they, he turned Apple around. Um, it reminds me of that a little bit of these obviously legacy products that some product manager that we don't care about is trying to give us like 50 quid Amazon gift cards for selling 20 grand's worth of something. Whereas, you know, we, we can sell a million quid's worth of operating room and, and surgical endos, endoscopy camera equipment instead and hit our targets with just two deals. Or we could sell 50,000 of these units instead. It, just really, it really reminds me of that. You reminded me, you're making me laugh because the amount of, of, of I'll just say it, arse kissing that was going on. Because, you know, the, the product managers, I mean, product managers were court me. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Yep. As from as from a sales standpoint, they're courting me. They said, Victor, let's go out to lunch. Let's go out to dinner. Let me take you here. Let me take you there. Let's go golfing. It was really <laughs> weird to be sold be sold to by product managers. And that's when I really respected product managers uh, even more because I realized, you know, they have to put together a marketing plan justified, uh, rally a team around just to get the product developed. Then they have to turn around and sell it. Not to the market. They have to sell it to the salespeople who are the toughest people to sell yep. so they can push their products. Big shout out to product managers who make the world go round. Yeah, I, I've talked about it on the show before on on this weekend uh, on the Salesman podcast. If I hadn't have done 
what I did and, and left the medical device position because there was no good sales training and I wanted to like really get into that marketplace and, and, and build the podcast and and kind of put our spin on, 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 on things, then I probably would have gone into product management because it is, um, you know, it's, it's parallel to sales. The product managers would come out and do a really good job selling on our behalf or go into large accounts and, and add value and, and speak to surgeons on a kind of very specific and, and deep, deep knowledge level, much more than I could with my broader um, surgical knowledge. It was interesting from that perspective. It was interesting from almost like a entrepreneur perspective of an internal entrepreneur where you've got to uh, perhaps you're not doing the R&D yourself, but you're certainly marketing the R&D. You're getting internal stakeholders involved in it. And you're, again, trying to get your sales team on board with crappy $50 Amazon uh, gift cards that no one wanted. So I, I would have probably gone into that space if I hadn't have uh, kind of branched out into the content production area. So let me ask you this, Victor, and then we'll move on to the next topic. If you weren't doing what you're doing of training, speaking, all that good stuff, what would you have done after kind of leaving corporate America? If I was, I don't. What would I have done? If you could, if you signed like a non-compete agreement or something like that, where you could not do anything to do with sales for five years, where would you have ended up? Where I, I always liked the entertainment business. I think. Are you asking me about where I would do it? I always loved the entertainment business. I, I think I would do something like with movies. Wow. You know what I mean. I think I would do something like movies. I think I've always loved the entertainment business. I don't know why. But I did want to I, I did want to share something with you, Will. I don't think you know this about me. <laughs> Here comes the reveal, okay. right? That that I was uh, working for a company at the day, uh, Trident Microsystems was the name, and I was director of sales. And I was wooed by another company, a telecom company, and here's how they wooed me. They said, Victor, this was the sales pitch this, the, 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 the guy gave me. His name was Steve. Steve said, Victor, if you ever want to move up in corporate America, really you know, be well-rounded, you need to go into product management. And so I actually left sales and went into product management where I managed a software team of nine people. And we developed a uh, something called Fiberbase, which was a uh, network management tool for managing fiber optic uh, routing systems. And so it was interesting because when I, when I went into product management, and you have to run your own you know, P&L, I, I did learn a lot about product development, marketing, so forth, and how to deal with salespeople. And I did that for like two years. And then I went back into sales. And I think I had a totally different perspective. So that's why I really respect product managers, because mm -hmm. I know how hard it is to do that job. It really is hard. And to deal with salespeople, even worse. So, <laughs> But anyway, to, 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 to answer your question, I think it would be the, you know, I guess, entertainment industry, something in the entertainment industry. How about yourself? What would you do? I would be doing exactly what yourself. I'm doing right now. But it would be uh, would be my spin-off show, which we, I don't think I've ever talked about. You may not know this about me. I do a, a side project that never gets updated because I never have time at the moment called Excited Science. The whole premise of the podcast and the videos and the content we produce is to very literally get people excited about science. So the, the intro to the shows is getting the, the scientist, whoever's on the, the show, usually the academics but ha who have a flair for entertainment and, and a passion for it mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who's just sat in a lab all day. Um, I asked them the very basic question of you know, what about your research would get an average person really excited about science, and then they, they, they throw it at us. So, I love that. I yeah. love that concept, man. That's a great concept. Mm -hmm. Bravo, Will. I like that concept. So eventually, when all, when all of this wraps up, science. eventually, Victor, when when we sell this week in sales and all the assets and the IP for fifty million dollars, mm -hmm. eventually, mate. That's genuinely that's what I'll be doing full time for the rest of my days because. I like that idea. That's a good idea. Yeah. I, really, I, I love the name of it, by the way. Excited Science. Mm -hmm. 
That's really good, man. That's really good. On that note, let's get back into what we're talking about. I want to talk to you about a new book that I just read. And I read it, Will. Listen to me. I read it. It's called The New Chameleons, How to Connect with Customers Who Defy Categorization by Michael Solomon. Now, consumers are changing. Here's a description. But the market categories used to identify them have not. Male or female, work or play, online or offline. These and other market categories are no longer relevant. What I loved about the book is that he talks about uh, seven obsolete dichotomies or models of how we look at people in the market. And this book, I, I am a fan. Uh, uh, I don't know who you know who, who Ernest Dichter is. Ernest Dichter was into consumer behavior in the 1950s. He was big. There's a guy by the name of Paco Underhill who wrote How They Buy, who was another researcher on consumer behavior. And I think Michael Solomon is, I don't want to say following his footsteps, he's just joining the ranks. And this book really makes you go, okay, I need to kind of look at how I view my categorizations different, differently. So if, if you're in sales, I don't know if I'd read this, but if you're a sales leader, I would strongly recommend this book because it really allows you to look at the market spaces differently now. Because everything, from, even when he talks about the male-female part, uh, uh, section about the dichotomy, we think it's male and female. We obviously know that today because of all this gender bending, right? There, there's new markets being created. That's just one of the dichotomies, the offline versus online. We've talked about this, well, where you're web rooming or showrooming, right? Mm -hmm. Web rooming, you see it on the web, then go buy it physically. Showrooming, you see it physically, then you buy it online. So he talks about how all this is blending. It is a great book, backed by research, uh, highly recommended. I th I'm not sure if gender bending is the politically correct way to describe that, Victor. But I, I don't know. Well, what is it? I, I, mean, I, I don't know either. Anybody. I, I don't know either. I, I mean, I, I keep hearing everything. So there's like, like, I just, what is it? Pan, pansexual. Do you know what that is? No. I mean, I, we're going to get in trouble here, but I just, I, I'm not, I'm not, I just don't know what it is anymore. But there's a, apparently there's a spectrum now between male and female, whatever that spectrum is. What the book is highlighting is there is, is it is acknowledging that spectrum and that we should market to that spectrum differently. And that's one of the dichotomies. That makes sense. Well, what, so that's, that's one example. What would be another example of a categorization, perhaps for a B2B product or service, Victor, that's seemingly worked at one time and now doesn't work and needs redefining? What would be another example of that? I, I think his online offline was the, the, the most broadest of the categories that I, that I related to because it's how we buy. And you, whether it's B2B or B2C, but let's stay with B2B. It's how we're buying today. And that is we want to go further into the buying cycle mm -hmm. on our own. We want to take the journey on our own. It's how we connect with them. And we know this already. We talk about this all the time. How we connect with them on that journey. And then, again, in the end, they're going to make a decision. So I think that to me was the biggest I guess, stretch. His whole thing is people don't buy vertically. Like you sell here, they buy sure. that. They buy this, they buy this, and they buy horizontally. And by the way, that gets into upselling and cross-selling and all these other wonderful things. But I think the AI piece is going to help because if I could pull together, and I think he uses the word constellation of items people bought from different markets, I can then begin to predict, predict whether or not they'll buy my product. I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I think that's the easiest way I can put it. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing that I do see, so Amazon must have the best product recommendation machine in the world. Is that is that fair to say? Fair to say. They never recommend me anything that I'd ever buy. It's always trash that they recommend me. So I don't know if I'm buying random things from, because I buy a lot of stuff from Amazon, right? I, I barely ever search the internet for, for most things now. I'll go to Amazon first. And I'm happy to pay a little bit extra because it's free, same or next day delivery and all that good stuff. But their recommendation engine is, for me personally, is rubbish. So this, it seems like there's that's, still that's a lot of work to do for this. 
I didn't, you know, I haven't thought about it. You just said that now. I go, I, I, was, I was reflecting. I go, how does it work for me? When it comes to recommending books, because I'm, I'm an avid book reader, it does pretty good, actually. But when it comes to the random products I buy, you're right. I don't use it at all because it doesn't predict anything. It just shows me a comparison table at the bottom. Here's the product you're looking at, and here are similar products. That's all it does. So, yeah, now that I, now you think of, now that I think about it, you're absolutely right. Jeez, Jeff Bezos <laughs> failed on that one, I think. Yo, 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 Jeff, no wonder you left. Give it to the other guy. What's the other guy's name now? Oh, the new I, guy that's taken over. Who cares? He's not he, Jeff Bezos. Who cares who he is? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, we we got to pay a little homage here because <laughs> we got to find his name because this guy actually was the guy who pushed AWS, the Amazon you know, web service, and his AWS was actually generating more revenue than the Amazon business unit itself. So let me see. I'm going to put new. <laughs> I gotta, we we got to give this guy a little respect here. New Amazon CEO. Let's see. Who is this guy? Let's see. Here he is. No, that's not him. That's still Jeff. By the way, do you know what Jeff Bezos' middle name is? Preston. 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 Because I've just Googled exactly the same thing as you. And I I Googled Amazon new CEO, and it comes up with (laughs) Jeff Bezos. That's how important Jeff Bezos is versus this schmuck who's took over from Victor. And we're going to leave it with that. Amazon. By the way, Andy Jassy, (laughs) a 24-year Amazon veteran. Look. Okay, I don't even know Andy, but I'm going to defend Andy because for all I know, he's like he's like the Wozniak to Steve Jobs. Wozniak was the real brain. Steve Jobs was just a creative genius who said, hey, you know, I have an idea. Uh, what if we took this, flipped it over, turned it on the side, stuck a plug on the side, and made it work? Okay, you guys figure out how to make that work. For all we know, J- Andy Jassy is the Wozniak in Amazon. I'm sure he is. I'm only playing. I'm only playing. <laughs> also, let us know we, what you think. We, By the way, we haven't even plugged this. Uh, leave us some feedback on thisweekinsales.com. Uh, always looking forward to hearing your feedback. Love the feedback. So, anyway, please leave us some. Go Any ahead. cease or desist letters from Amazon.com, please send to Victor directly at thisweekinsales.com. Okay. So, have you been following this next story, Victor, about shaming salespeople I have, on I, LinkedIn? I have not, but I have not. It wasn't until I read your notes, I go, what? So I said, okay, I read it, I digested it, but I'll let you take the lead and then let's talk about it. Okay, so this was all over my LinkedIn newsfeed. Now, I maybe check LinkedIn kind of once, twice a day just to keep on top of things. I don't use it as an outbound prospecting platform. I'm not messaging people. I don't add people on there, but I'll accept people who add uh, myself and anyone has a message or anything like that. Sometimes um, our customers will sometimes use LinkedIn to drop me a message rather than email, whatever it is. So I do check it perhaps once or twice a day. Now, Jeff Molander, who is a LinkedIn trainer of, uh, sorry, a, a sales trainer of, of 20 odd years, a sales communication trainer, made a LinkedIn post and he outed and shaped, I'm going to quote it because this is up for, this is an opinion, right? Shamed a, uh, a young lad called Hans who sent him some cold prospecting outreach on the platform. Now, the outreach they sent was not particularly customized, wasn't a great sales message. Um, and the criticism came on Jeff that he just copy and pasted or screenshotted the outreach mm-hmm. and dumped it on LinkedIn, criticized the lad um, and didn't offer him any constructive feedback, um, didn't blur out his name, didn't blur out his mm. image, which is... You know, we, we could discuss this in a second of what's right and wrong, and I guess even legally, in terms of service-wise, what might be right and wrong here. But the post blew up, not in a good way. 
it blew up and it got over 350,000 views, 900 plus comments, and then Jeff has deleted it. Jeff Melander has deleted it since. Now, Victor, was Jeff in an... Did Jeff do something inappropriate here? I guess that's the first question. Did he do something inappropriate in that he's a sales and communication trainer and he got some bad sales communication and he threw it on LinkedIn and he got a ton of traffic, a ton of attention, and he... I don't know whether he's doing right or wrong with his, his own personal brand and his business brand, but he got a ton of attention from it. Did he do something that was inappropriate for the platform? So did you say he was a sales and communication <laughs> expert? I just want to make sure I got this right. I want to make sure I got this right. Well, let, so, let, me, let me do my due diligence and I'll go on his LinkedIn profile because I don't want to do what he's potentially yeah. done and muddle, right. muddle the water here, right? So, yeah, it says uh, helping sellers start and advance buyer conversation with community vetting. So he's a managing partner and sales communication coach. That is the verbatim from a, the LinkedIn. A program. communications coach. Okay, so just want to get some data points here. Uh, but look at what he said. Uh, what is his LinkedIn? Uh, it says helping sell sellers start. <laughs> you know, so, and then by the way, no offering no constructive criticism. I have not read the feed, uh, the actual post. So he didn't give any constructive feedback. He just, I can't find the post because it's been deleted to to put okay. in the, the show notes. So, but yeah, he just rinsed the guy. He just, just ripped into him. Well, so first of all, I think one, inappropriate. Do you know what I mean? You could, you could have made that same point by blurring the guy's face out and the name, right? If you really wanted to do that. That's so... You know, you can't call yourself a communication expert or helping buyers get started, sellers get started. Well, you start ripping into somebody. You know what I see today a lot, Will, and I and I think this is this is I don't know, is maybe it's just our society today, is that young people, and I mean that I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I mean that in a very positive way. Young people who are coming out of college, let's say 25, 26, 27, they're trying to get their legs underneath them. They don't know what they're doing sometimes, right? They're mm -hmm. trying to figure it out. And it's our job as leaders, people who've been there, because we've already taken the slings and the arrows. We know what that is to be ridiculed. And it seems like we should take more of a, the high road here. Do you know what I mean? And actually help them out. I get a lot of, come on, you get a bunch of these spam things from people. And I, I kind of want to respond sometimes with some snarky. I said, no, I, I just don't respond, right? And if I do respond, I said, look, this is really not a value statement. Send me something that has value. Maybe I'll read it. But to, to, to put them on blast mm -hmm. and put them online, uh, it, to me, it's a jerk move, total jerk move. I am not saying that Jeff Molander is the jerk, just that that move right there was a jerk move. I think that's that? fair. Is that, is that pretty clear? That's pretty clear. <laughs> that's fair. And, no, you know, not cool. part, part not of cool. the backlash on this, Victor, was, mm. and again, this is this is an opinion as opposed to a fact. It's difficult mm. to be objective about this. It's all subjective. A lot of the backlash was Jeff just not, not, not redacting. I think he's done a redaction <clears throat> video now for what it's worth. You know, sure. How many people have seen it versus the 350,000 people who saw the original post? Who knows? Um, but it was the fact that he didn't, he didn't back down from this, which is fine. If you know, if he, he believed he was he, right, he, fine. He didn't, show, he, he didn't show remorse. No. And his ego was getting the best of him. Yep. And he's like, I refuse to be bullied online. Is probably what he's thinking. My opinion is my opinion. Here's who I am. I mean, he went through all that, and we all go through all that. So I'm not criticizing Jeff because I've done that in the past, and I know you've done it in the past. And everybody listening to this has probably done something <laughs> where you make a statement, you put it out there, and you just don't want to back down because you're like, well, that's my opinion. That's how I feel. This is my channel, my account. Why can't I say that? 
and you feel all offended until you realize that it's just <laughs> not cool. Until you realize you're wrong <laughs> and you look like a fool. And just to yeah. double down uh, on this, Jeff commented it, on one of my posts. Uh, with uh oh, uh -oh. Here, we so, here, so we go. Go here we go. Here we go. Jeff. Oh, oh, here we go. So I posted a, a LinkedIn guide. I got guide. your back, Will. Will, I got your back, Will. I got your <laughs> I, back. I just I, want you to know. I posted a LinkedIn guide from uh, a friend, Sam Dunning, who created this LinkedIn guide. It's only a five. It's basically a tiny book. And it, it's Sam's done really well on LinkedIn. So I wanted to share it. I wanted to kind of pay it forward with him and because I think he's doing good work. So then Jeff commented, and hopefully we can have this on the screen as I say it. He okay. commented, absolutely, I want to build a professional brand and crush it. Then he tagged in Mark Preeley and says, let's, question mark. So I was like, this is bloody sarcastic because you're supposed to be an expert in this. Then the comment from Mark, this is the one. This is the one, Victor, that got my back up. Mark says, "Okay, maybe Sam can help us get out of the hole, Jeff. I assume he's referring to the fact that Jeff had so much negative feedback on this original post. Right. Mark continues, right. you've got your memes, platitudes, positively placards, an empathy wagon fueled up and ready to go. I think he's undermining the power of memes on social media here. It's probably yeah. the best, one of the best ways of communicating and getting attention, um, which just shows how redundant uh, Mark Pilly's opinion is on this, that so many, even Elon Musk was making comments about memes and the effectiveness of them not too long ago. I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast. He was saying mm. how, how effective they are at communicating complex things in a picture and a few lines of text. So when, uh, I'm afraid, Jeff, when you and your, your, your crony uh, Pele come and, and commenting on my, on my posts, th that's it. The game's up now, buddy. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's always interesting how, uh, you know, the, the amount of testosterone that kicks in, you know, <laughs> and, you know, in some of these conversations. It's just, I, you know, again, I used to participate. I don't any longer. I just don't want to have any of these discussions with people. I, I'm going to go back to the point, dear Jeff Molander, not a cool move, man. Just not a cool move. Now, if you wanted attention, you got it. If you want some notoriety, I use that word very uh, mm -hmm. specifically. If you want notoriety, you got it. Uh, if this benefits you in some way, great. But at the, at the same time, just remember that that kid you made, I don't know if he's a kid or a guy, that guy you made fun of had to put up with all that crap. And that right there is not good karma, man. That's just horrible karma. That's not cool. No. Not and cool at all. Do you know that I don't? Maybe, maybe secretly we're aligned on this. I would love to start getting into some online arguments, Victor. I would love if LinkedIn turned into the the drama fest that what YouTube is of of doing music videos, just slamming each other, going back and forth, and driving tons of clicks and attention. If I could do a music video accusing you of something inappropriate, I, I would definitely do it for the for the clicks and the views. I would love that. I've, I would literally, genuinely, as long as it was all done lightheartedly, because um, I'm sure I, all these I, I, uh, I, arguments I, I, on YouTube are, are done with the knowledge that we're driving each other's attention and traffic up. I, I would really enjoy that, but I'm, it's not appropriate for a business I'm, platform. No, I, look, there, there's so many cynical sites, so many cynical platforms out there. You want to make some cynical comments, go to Instagram, make your videos, Twitter, Facebook. I don't know. Am I LinkedIn snobbed? And I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't want to see anything about politics. You know, I don't want to see anybody petting puppies. Okay, I don't want to see that stuff. It's it's a it's a business platform. Let's keep it business. Let's all try to crowdsource each other by saying let's keep it above the fray, and let's maintain a certain standard. That's my attitude towards LinkedIn. I want it to be a a home for a business intelligence. Emphasis on the word intelligence, by the way. I think there's one How's flaw. That? I think there's one flaw here, Victor. 
Yeah, the human flaw. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, intelligence. This is massively variable across uh, the members of LinkedIn. I think this is this, the, the, the problem to the utopia Will, that you're pitching dream, here. Will. Let me dream. Well, I want my Shangri-La, my utopia. I want that. But anyway, I'm hoping that LinkedIn remains one of these places where, you know, some of the nonsense is muted. I, I love when people criticize other people on LinkedIn because it's almost like we're it's because I don't see it as bullying. I don't see it as, uh, you know, people just trying to you know mute people. I think it's people saying, hey, come on, stay in the lane. It's a business line. Stay in the line. But I think, you know, shaming somebody like like sure. Jeff did uh, is not cool. And I think we've shamed Jeff enough on this show. I think Jeff, that is fair. You're, you're probably a cool dude, man, but jerk move. <laughs> anyway, on that, here's a story that really touched my heart, Will. Just emotionally just impacted me. Boomers left behind by jobs recovery. Article by Andrew Murfett over at LinkedIn News. A significant shift is quietly taking place. Don't you love, I mean, see that right there, that opening line? A significant shift is quietly taking place. And, you know, in the U.S. labor market, according to Bloomberg, as a wave of people 55 and older flee. I don't like the word flee the labor force. I think they're basically being booted out of the labor force. Scores of disgruntled. Why do they have to be, see how they, see, okay, Will, I got a problem here. First of all, look how they use the word like flee. You know, that's running, right? Like running, like scattering, right? Then he goes, scores of disgruntled, right? Why, why disgruntled? Uh, boomer workers have given up looking for work since the pandemic began, with the participation rate of workers over 55 slumping to 2% since last March, equating to the loss of 2 million workers from the labor force, which is really not that much. Some 2.7 million jobs for workers under the age of 55 have been created since August, with just 20,000 jobs created for workers over 55 in the same period. To me, I read this article and I go, this is one of those, I think Andrew Murphett, if I can just kind of call him out a little bit, I don't think there's, this one's so mischaracterized. I think the real message, I, I wish he would have gone with, let's talk about how boomers are adjusting to this new market shift. You know, some people are going to drop out of the market. Some people are going to upskill. Let's talk about that. How did so, you read this one? So these, these numbers are, are are difficult, right? The participation mm -hmm. rate of workers over 55 slumping by 2% since last March. Mm -hmm. Well, if you mm -hmm. look at 16 to 21-year-olds, I'm pretty sure because all their jobs have just disappeared if you're in a an entry-level role. They've just all disappeared because offices are closed, McDonald's is closed. All these jobs that a 16-year-old kid would do no longer exist, may never come back in a lot of cases. So that slumping rate is probably 50%, 80%. So right. That's that 2% yeah. of over 55s uh, is disingenuous in the way it's been... Uh, it's been put in here Describe without here. the context of other um, kind of age groups. But maybe maybe some of it's true of if you're 55, you've got a bit of cash in the bank, you want to retire early, sod it, I would if I could. I'd be I'd be out of the market. And maybe you'd love to come back in in a few, four, five, six years. Maybe right now, Victor, is a great time to have somewhat of a sabbatical of, right, sod all this. It's a, Everything's a mess. I'm just going to take two years off. I've got the savings. I'll come back, see what we're doing, rock and rolling in a couple of years from now. Maybe there's an element of that to some of this as well. But I like that. I actually like that better. Like sure. sitting out instead of fleeing the labor force. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just sitting out. I got money. I got bank. It just seemed like this article was just trying to generate drama. 
And so I, I love the point. I wish they would have talked more about what they're doing. Are they sitting out or are they upscaling? What's the dynamic there? As opposed to just trying to stir the pot and like, oh, my God, here it goes. You're like, no, numbers aren't that bad. Anyway, that's my gripe for the weekend. I thought I'd throw that in there. Well, we've got to somehow pull this back to a positive note towards the end of the show, Victor. So we'll, uh, we kind of bashed these guys last week. I appreciate... Vivun, V-I-V-U-N, for reaching out on uh, a post of yours, Victor. And they say, Victor Antonio, thanks for talking about our funding news. So we were talking about them last week and we dove into this conversation about what the heck pre-sales engineering is or pre-sales right. solutions. So they say, in, in response to our content last week, which I'll link to in the show notes of this episode over at This Week in Sales, if you want to catch up, they say, we appreciate that pre-sales or sales engineering or solutions consulting or a host of other names is only beginning to be widely known and we'd love to help answer some of your questions. The common thread under every title under pre-sales uh, acumen coupled with... The common thread across every title under pre-sales is sales acumen coupled with a deep understanding technology, a challenging skill set to hire for, which that's fair to say, right? That is challenging to hire for if you want both. Pre-sales professionals mm -hmm. command high salaries and cannot be onboarded fast enough by businesses in technology companies. In brief, pre-sales is a department within a technology company that supports sales in closing business through solution expertise. So it's not just sales upfront, which is what we assumed it was from the title, throughout the entire mm -hmm. sales process. And I guess it's it's almost, if we want to frame this up slightly differently, it might be like a product manager equivalent of someone who has deep expertise <clears> like <throat> yourself in uh, development of products or services that have been then, that service is perhaps being sold into an organization. Um, so we appreciate the the outreach. Have you got anything you want to add to this, Victor? No, I, I, I thought it was very cool that, that First of all, they listen to our, our mm -hmm. podcast, which is great. And I love the fact that they give us feedback, clarification. I like when people push back to say, I don't think you're understanding us correctly. They even offered to come on to the show and answer any questions. And they said, we don't mind the hard questions. Happy face. See, that's a cool attitude. That is a cool attitude. I mean, we kind of went after them a little bit. They responded with, let us clarify, and still had a cool attitude at the end. I think I like this company. I just like it. Well, I look, think I like them. That, this is clearly the future of sales and marketing, right? They get PR yes, in the first perspective. They get on the show the second time around. The tens of thousands of sales professionals, sales leaders are going to hear it again. So they've had double the exposure. And you've just painted them in a really positive light, all from someone in their marketing team, I assume, has listened to perhaps just a segment of the show. Maybe they're not listening to the whole even thing. And I left you a nice comment, clarified a few points that we were unsure of. And I think we were, um, I think we were quite fair in how we said we, we don't know how this pans out. We're not experts in this in this field. They've added value to our audience by doing that. And clearly, this is a much better way to use LinkedIn to drive attention uh, and traffic than uh, previous examples on this episode. Hey, you know who I want to hear from? Do you know who I want to hear from? Jeff I want Bezos. to hear from Jeff Molander. <laughs> I, want to, I really do. I, I would think it would be interesting to get his perspective pre and post, you know, shitstorm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Here's what I was thinking. Here's what happened. Here's now what I think of what I just did. Jeff, would love to get your opinion. I would love to figure out, you know, uh, just to understand what you went through and what happened. I think it would be an interesting perspective. Because, sure. I, but I, because I think it was probably something that you know, without knowing who the person is, I, I got to believe he wasn't, it wasn't malicious. He was just making a point. He just didn't realize that by not obscuring the person's name or face, people would take offense to that, especially in a, you know, data privacy environment. 
You know what I mean? And bullying environment. People don't like that. But I don't think he – it was probably wasn't malicious, but it got out of hand. It, it definitely spiraled. And we got a little yeah. bit of what I've seen numerous times when I've posted stupid things. Because we've all done mm. it, right? If you post enough content. We've all done If you it. produce enough content, you're going to say something that you don't mean. It gets taken out of context, uh, whatever it is. And if you're in sales and you have that many conversations, you're going to – you're going to scupper her up, but you're going to scupper yourself at some point. Um, you had essentially the LinkedIn police getting involved in this, which riled it up and drove more traffic to it as well, of people oh, yeah. demanding that Jeff apologize. Now, if those individuals weren't involved, it probably would have just blown over a lot quicker and would have been a lot simpler yeah. and less perhaps stressful for the salesperson involved. The salesperson involved might not have even realized it because Jeff didn't have that big of an audience anyway. So it was the LinkedIn police <laughs> that kind of amplified all this. <laughs> By the way, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get biblical here, if you don't mind. Okay. Biblical. And then let he or she cast a first stone that has never deleted a post. <laughs> Cause we've all posted something to go, ooh, I got let me just delete that, right? So we've all done it. So, you know, leave my man Jeff alone. Like I said, he de- he deserves to be whipped on this one, but other than that, he's probably a good guy. Leave us your feedback, Jeff. I'm I'm, I'm trying to defend you here, man. I'm trying to defend you. Good. Well, we'll hopefully have a bit of a statement from Jeff <laughs> next week. And with that, we'll wrap up right there, Victor. That was Victor Antonio, sales legend. You can contact Jeff. Uh, you can contact we can contact Jeff whenever you want. Go on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can contact Victor and myself, Will Barron, founder of Sales and Dog, over at thisweekinsales.com. Lead us your thoughts, feedback, any industry news you want us to cover. Drop it in on the form there. And with that, we'll speak with you next week on This Week in Sales.